It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. My guest today is a 25-time Grammy-nominated pianist, saxophonist, composer, arranger, conductor, and big band leader, Gordon L. Goodwin. While many of you may not readily recognize his name, there are not many people, I would dare say, anywhere who can say they haven't heard his music. So where would you have heard the music of this distinguished composer, arranger, and artist? Well, besides his Grammy-winning jazz and big band recordings from the Gordon Goodwin's Big Fat Band, you may have heard his work at the movies, among many films like The Incredibles, The Sorcerer's Apprentice, Escape to Witch Mountain, Get Smart, National Treasure, Armageddon, Star Trek Nemesis, and many others. Oh, and did I mention the classic cult film, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes? And there may have also been TV productions like Steven Spielberg-produced shows, Animaniacs, and Pinky and the Brain. And if that's not enough, he has also written and worked with artists like Ray Charles, Christina Aguilera, Johnny Mathis, John Williams, Natalie Cole, David Foster, Sarah Vaughn, Mel Torme, and Quincy Jones, just to name a few. And of course, now the Recording Academy has come a-calling again this year with three nominations, first of which is a composition nomination shared with Raymond Scott for Cutie and the Dragon, which is on the album Raymond Scott Reimagined, featuring Quartet San Francisco, Take Six, and The Big Fat Band. This recording focuses on the legacy of the late composer Raymond Scott, whose works were frequently used in the Warner Brothers' Mary Melody's cartoons. Even though Scott never scored the cartoon tracks, they were adapted for use in this animated genre. The other two nominations for this year's Grammys are in the category Best Jazz Vocal Album from Patty Austin, and it features Goodwin's Big Fat Band. This album is called For Ella 2 and is a tribute to Ella Fitzgerald. And the third nomination is for his arrangement of April in Paris, which is on the Patty Austin Ella Fitzgerald album. My conversation with Gordon Goodwin begins with the genesis of how and when this musical journey came about. In looking into your background, I was first of all impressed by the fact that in the seventh grade, I'm running around doing all kinds of crazy things, but I never did anything that was life-fulfilling at this point. But you were already in the seventh grade composing big band music. How did that come about? Well, my first, my first, hang loose chart. Yeah, I wrote hang loose, and I owe it to my uh, band director, my middle school and high school band director. His name was Robin Snyder, and we, as we speak here today, uh, he passed away two weeks ago mm. about a couple months shy of his 99th birthday wow and um he was uh he said to me you need to he played me a count basie record he goes check these guys out he goes i think you should write this kind of music and i i said well i like it but i don't know how to do that he goes ah you'll figure it out go write something bring it in we'll play it and he he just nudged me along and so um I, I I went home and figured it out. <laughs> I mean, he, he's right. A lot of times composers just kind of have to roll around on the ground with it and and 
find the first note and then find the second note and figure it out. It's funny because um, since Robin's passing, we have a gig. The Big Fat Band has a gig at a, uh, a new uh, performing arts center right across the street from my old high school. And we're going to play this gig for, for their jazz festival in March. And now this has certainly turned into a tribute to Robin Snyder. So what I need to do is go to storage and find that chart. Yeah, I've got it somewhere. And I think I'm going to have the big fat band play that chart um, oh, at the concert as a tribute to Robin. I have no idea, you know, how cringeworthy it's going to be to play it. But the fact that I did it at, at age 13, you know, I mean, I guess that that's definitely saying something. And, um, the fact that the the guy the kids in the band liked it and supported me because I was Ellen I was really worried that they'd make fun of me you know mm-hmm. you're 13 and sticking right. out from the crowd is can be a little bit treacherous and then we recorded it at the spring concert and then after that I wrote another chart and then in high school I'd write maybe two or three charts a year and and Robin would just let me conduct the band he'd say here you got it kid and he'd walk off stage and I'd be conducting the band as a high school student and and uh, invaluable, just invaluable uh, support from Robin. Well, you answered my question because I was going to ask you, did you ever record that later on in life in uh, the contemporary times and in your adult life? Is it on any uh, of your recordings? And it sounds like not, no. It, it, it's not, but I, I, uh, I'm, I've been playing around because I've got a, some vinyl because we recorded the spring concert. I think it's in storage. And that might be an interesting thing to take that original recording and and create a, a piece that starts from that, maybe 16 bars of that, and then morphs into the big fat band playing uh, a, a new imagining of that piece hang loose, you know, that kind of reflects my, my viewpoint and my skill set currently. Mm-hmm. That might be an interesting thing, albeit a little bit self-indulgent, but... Um, uh, that might be something to do before before uh, it all comes to a close. Well, keep us posted. So yeah. from that stage, you progressed on uh, studying music through your educational process? Mm-hmm. At, at Cal State Northridge in, in Southern California, uh, they had no jazz major at the time. So they told me, Gordon, here's what you could do. You're going to study counterpoint. And you're going to study conducting, you're going to study orchestration, music history, a bunch of stuff that I would have not have chosen to do. I just wanted to play jazz. It's all I liked. It's all I cared about. But they said, you can play in the jazz band, but in order to do that, you have to do all this other stuff. So I'm studying Mozart and Debussy and Tchaikovsky and Bartok, and I'm learning how to conduct. And I'm after a couple of years, I'm, I fall in love with it. At the same time, I was playing in a band in a club in the evenings, and we would play music of Stevie Wonder and Earth, Wind, and Fire and the Beatles and stuff, you know. So I'm learning about pop music, which I had kind of ignored up to that time in my life. So, you know, I got jazz as my core and then classical music at school and rock and roll and pop music at night. So that kind of created my palette, which it is still pretty pretty wide, you know. I really, I really like to... Uh, break down barriers between styles so that jazz can kind of funk music can flow into jazz or Latin music can kind of intersect or film music or any, you know, whatever given styles can all be this big stew. And I think that came from uh, those formative years, you know, when I was in college 
How did you end up becoming involved with things like the movie world and Warner Brothers and cartoons? Mm. Well, the animation? first thing was I had a college roommate whose brother was a director, and he was working on a comedy sci-fi spoof called Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. And he asked me and my other roommate, Paul, you want to put, you want to do the music for my movie? And we said, sure. Even though we really didn't know how, but we just said yes. And um, I wrote the score to this. We had a, we had a very little small budget, but we hired a, maybe a 40 piece orchestra. And I wrote a music that I wrote a score that was very evocative of John Williams and Henry Mancini, pretty jazzy but also kind of Star Wars-y, you know. And um, that was my first my first experience in a recording studio. I listen to it now, and it sounds okay. <laughs> but, you know, uh, it, was, it was my first effort. And we lucked into it. And after that, I thought, here we go. I'm going to be a com- film composer. And the phone didn't ring. Mm. And uh, even though the film was pretty bad, it was so bad that it became kind of a cult film right and people would go to see it but um anyway so after that experience i learned that things don't happen unless you pursue it and that's something that wasn't taught to me in school i I didn't know how to get a job i didn't know how to get an agent i didn't know any of that but i did have a friend who had a job at disneyland and he said hey they're hiring piano players come on down and audition so i went down to disneyland and i auditioned i got the gig so I'm playing piano, I'm playing like uh, ragtime piano, you know, and then I play uh, rock, rock and roll piano in Tomorrowland, and then I play saxophone in this other show band. So I was all over the place at Disneyland, and it was fantastic, Alan. It was like I was learning how to be a professional at that place. We got vacation pay. We got all kinds of perks back then. It was pretty great. Mm-hmm. And then Disney hired me to do the music for this Mouseketeer reunion show. So these are the original Mouseketeers from the 50s, like Cubby and Lonnie and Tommy and, you know, Sharon and Annette and all those. So, so I, did a, a sh- I wrote the music for that show, and that led over- eventually to Disney calling me, and they still do. I still work a lot for them on attractions and fireworks shows and parades and things like that. So that pe- became a lifelong relationship, you know, working for that company. It's all relationship-based. I had a friend, he worked at the, at the park and got me in the door. I had a roommate whose brother was making a movie that got me in the door. All the cold calls that you can make and you send your demo tape out to music supervisors and you know anybody you can think of, it's, I think you need to do it as a young composer, but it's, a, it's like a lottery win. You've got to know somebody. True. You just have it. Just that's the way that's the way the, the business works, you know. The interesting thing for me now, uh, this stage of my career, is that a lot of the people that I knew when I was um, part of the most active part of my composing career, they're gone now. They retired or moved on to other things, you know. So now I'm having to re uh, reassemble those relationships. 
music supervisors at the studios and, you know, things like that. So that's the thing, you know, I think you just need to stay flexible. Like I had to, you know, relearn how to compose using all the computers and then uh, I had to now um, relearn how to, uh, how to get a gig, you know. Right. And here's the thing, man, I, I, I still feel that my um, life force is strong. My creative, my creative um, impetus is still, you know, talking to me. I got, I'm at the point where a lot of my friends are talking about retiring and I'm like, what are you talking about? What, why would I retire from this and do what? This is the best thing ever. Nonetheless, uh, I, I still feel like I have uh, plenty of more music to write. I'm uh, about to take on this movie. Can't tell you what it is because I signed the thing, you know. But okay. um, we're, we're, we're negotiating that deal right now, which hopefully will uh, get started on that probably in the next few months. But so that, that's going to be an exciting thing once it come, all comes together. And then I have a new record. It's a piano record. Or it's a piano duet record, and I play both parts. And it's um, wow. it's called uh, Gordon Goodwin Music for Two Pianos. Simple enough. And it's kind of a classical meets jazz meets Latin hybrid. And most of the tracks are just two pianos, uh, duets. But then three of the tracks I brought in bass and drums, so we kind of took it a little bit of a different direction. That'll be kind of different. Since most of the time I'm putting albums out with, you know, big bands and larger ensembles. Um, but it felt like something I wanted to do. And the whole process, I became really connected with the piano again. And this now appropriately leads us into a conversation about the three Grammy nominations that you have for this year. The first of which is for a composition for the song Cutie and the Dragon, and you share this composition nomination with the late Raymond Scott, and it's on an album called Raymond Scott Reimagined, which features the Quartet San Francisco, Take Six, and the Big Fat Band. And this recording focuses on the legacy of Raymond Scott, who actually his works were frequently used in Warner Brothers' Merry Melodies cartoons, but interestingly enough, Scott never really scored the cartoon soundtracks that his music appears on, but they were adapted for use on these cartoons. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Particularly since he didn't really want to write for cartoons and he wasn't it wasn't a goal for him, but he licensed his his catalog to Warner Brothers. And and Carl Stalling found that stuff and said, "All oh, this stuff is perfect." And put it in Looney Tunes cartoons all over the place. So it was definitely not a goal for him to, to write for cartoons. But he definitely had that sensibility, doesn't he? Yeah, and, and especially with the timing of it, the tempo of everything, the just the characteristics of, of either the arrangements and or composition combined, it just fit uh, in, into all the cartoon genre. Yeah, and, and he, you know, I watch, was watching a show on Apple TV last night called Lessons in Chemistry, and they use they use a lot of uh, needle drop of music from the 40s, 50s, mm -hmm. and they played a Raymond Scott piece that's on our record. Uh, it's on this record, and it's called um, The Quintet Goes to a Dance. Yeah. 
And um, he spelled uh, quintet, Q-U-I-N-T-E-T-T-E. But actually, he had a sextet is what he had. Right. But he was famous, well, infamous, I guess, for saying that he didn't want, didn't want to call it a sextet because he didn't want people thinking about that as they listened to his music. So he called it a quintet, even though it was not literally a quintet. And, you know, his tempos were fierce. Yeah. I was reminded of that last night during that show, and I heard how fast they were doing it. And I made a decision to slow the tempos down partially because with a small group, it's one thing. But with, you know, 18 to 20 people, actually with 22 with the, with the string quartet, it's a big, bulky, like, you know, trying to de- turn a cruise ship. Takes a minute. So with all that weight, uh, I felt that the slower tempos, I mean, certainly the tempos are still brisk. Mm-hmm. But they aren't frenetic like Raymond Scott's tempos were. So we made a decision to maybe kind of take the edge off a little bit there. But there were still plenty of things. The intervals he chooses, some of the harmonies, you know, are are pretty wacky. And um, extraordinary that he really wasn't a notated, write-it-down kind of composer. He just had it in his head. And he would sing it to the musician and say something like this. And they would kind of learn it organically uh, at rehearsal. Yes. Which is amazing because the music's pretty complex, pretty sophisticated, but that's how they put it together. And what's interesting, too, that I found was that the, among his musicians, he had Bunny Berrigan on the trumpet, uh, which is, uh, yeah. he, he's uh, an icon. Uh, and then the drummer was Johnny Williams, the father of John Williams, the composer we all know today. And... John, uh, Johnny Williams had a couple of uh, number of kids, two of them, John Williams, who we all know, and Don Williams, who was also a percussionist. And I had worked with Don many times on films. He plays timpani, one of the best timpanists in town. So we got him on this record on a track called Twilight in Turkey. brought in some of his dad's drums so we had some tom-toms cowbells a few other instruments that johnny williams used on the raymond scott you know uh quintet and we actually even asked john williams if he would play cowbell on this <laughs> on this piece and his response his his uh, de- uh, declining of that invitation was he said um he said, it's not, uh, it's the bell, not he who hits it. That's what he said. I just was really thought it would be hilarious to have a credit on this record saying Cowbell by John Williams, but it was not to be. Oh, well, that's too bad. It would have been very fitting and, and absolutely whimsical and wonderful. Both, both John Williams and, his, and Don were really excited 
uh, about the projects because it was their dad, you know, that was in the band for some time, and it, it was a nice to be kind of have a have a link to that history. The other the other thing that was uh, really memorable for me was that I wrote a song. Well, I took a Raymond Scott song that was not finished. Right, the Cutie and the Dragon song. And they allowed me to finish it. Mm -hmm. And all they gave me was a single sheet of paper with some scribbles on it, ideas, like a little phrase here, a couple of other phrases there, but no chords or no bass line. It was really just um, the briefest of sketches. And he was working on this for his granddaughter, Kathy. And I met Kathy. We talked about it. She, she She played viola and was maybe, I think, 12 at the time. So she remembers sitting with him, working on this a little bit. Uh, I also on that same lead sheet, I can see her manuscript. She wrote out a few of the, few of the ideas in alto clef for the viola. So she was you know, involved with it. But they gave me the uh, privilege of finishing that song. And I knew Raymond Scott's music pretty well because in the 90s, I worked at Warner Brothers Animation. And we worked on some shows for Steven Spielberg, one called Animaniacs, mm-hmm. other Pinky and the Brain, a lot of that stuff. And our gig was to write music like Carl Stalling and Raymond Scott. So I took a deep dive into their language back then. So when Jeremy Cohen called me to get involved in this project with Quartet San Francisco, it was felt like a kind of a full circle for me. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so it was great to to take that to take that piece that Raymond started and you know bring it to fruition, and then we got a, a Grammy nomination for that for that composition. probably lose to john williams because he's in the same category right then that's only right what a touching story to finish a song that was written for a grandchild and and never really come to conclusion i did a a podcast zoom podcast with her and and uh, raymond scott's son and uh, daughter and then the grand and then kathy and and it was this this was his first nomination. I think a lot of his work predated the Grammy Awards. So, mm-hmm. you know, that was a lot of it. And then and then later in his life he got involved in electronic music. He was an inventor, right? 
he invented synthesizers and all these weird machines and whatnot. So um, uh, this is his first Grammy nomination, and so it's really exciting to see uh, to see the family, you know, uh, relive, remember their father, uh, you know, uh, through this whole experience. I know, and you know, first of all, John Williams, he's got a a shelf full of trophies. <laughs> yeah, I think he does. Well, Don Williams, his brother, did call me and said, hey, Gordon, don't worry. I think they're tired of giving Grammys to John. I think you got a good shot at this. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, I, I uh, am such a, a fan of, of John, and uh, he's he's been an enormous influence for me. So I really, I didn't vote for him. I voted for my own piece, but I had to think about it. Like, because part of the rules for voting is you're supposed to vote based on what you feel is best musically, not based on politics, not based on friendship, any of that other stuff. You're supposed to vote for that. Um, mm -hmm. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I had to I had to give it give it some thought. I've lost to John Williams probably about six times uh, in the 20 years or so that I've been uh, fortunate enough to be kind of traveling, you know, in these circles. Here's how I feel about it. Winning, winning the awards uh, feels good, but the true value is if I can, if if this uh, whole experience will enable me to open up a door or two to keep doing this, keep making records, you know, keep recording and, and writing music, that's the value of it. If it's going to help, you know, the next guy go, oh yeah, he's got twenty five nominations. Oh yeah, let's hire him. That. Is is what it what uh, really I find is um, you know valuable about it, you know when people like yourself say say that the music has meaning to you, um, that is really uh, feels wonderful. Mm -hmm. However, as an artist, here's what I believe: I think that my responsibility is to write music that sounds good to me, to be honest about what sounds good to me, and then if if a record you know of music fans like it. If the if Grammy voters like it, that's really great. But it's not the point. It's not the it's not the entire point. If I were to if I were to contrive what I do in order to win a Grammy, that's really not an honest representation of what music should be. And of course, let's not lose sight of the fact that you have two other shots at a Grammy this year, thanks to the work that you have and your collaboration with Patty Austin and her wonderful Ella Fitzgerald tribute.
such a wonderful uh, vocalist and musician and probably without question heir apparent to Ella Fitzgerald. So her, this Ella tribute record was something that was um, close to her heart. I was just so thrilled to always to work with Patty. She is a hoot. She's, she's uh, unstoppable. So we're really, we're looking forward to that. And I really hope that she uh, pulls, pulls this, uh, this win in because she really deserves it. And um, definitely privileged to be involved in that one too. And it's it's a great project. It's up for the Grammy for Best Jazz Vocal Album. It, it's uh, going to be running in some pretty interesting company, but uh, I, I say yeah. this one is uh, right up uh, near the top of the uh, the milk bottle where the cream has risen. And let's hope so. And then on top of that, you have uh, been the beneficiary of a secondary Grammy nomination for that album, and that's the Best Arrangement instruments and vocal category yes. for yeah. the uh, song April in Paris, which, by the way, that song, to me, when I listened to it, it, it was not only uh, could you understand why it was nominated, but it was surprising, especially like at the end, how that recording ends. It was like, that came out of left field for me, and it was like, wow, it's still going, and you're still making the statement. That came from a, uh, our inability to decide what approach we were going to do. Because I said, well, we could go like Count Basie and swing it. Because Ella would do that, and you know, you could kill that. Or we could go and emphasize the romance of the song, and you know, and Paris and all that stuff. I go, so what do you think? And she said, I don't know. I like both of those. I don't know. I said, well, take it over. And, uh, you know, let me know, and I'll, I'm going to work on some other stuff. And so I kept asking her, and she wouldn't answer me. So finally I said, well, what do, what do, what do we do both? Mm-hmm. So maybe I'll start off, and I'll bring an accordion in here, you know, and make it feel like, uh, you know, Paris, and write a beautiful, you know, introduction and let her sing, and then, you know, segue into the swing thing, let her do that. with the with the opening material maybe that would work 
And so I did a demo and I sent it to Patty. You know, she calls up, she goes, you son of a, she goes, that's what I was going to tell you to do. That's exactly what I was going to tell you to do. I said, well, you told me, you know, telepathically or something. So thank you for observing that because um, that seems to be uh, what people take back from, you know, from the song is that you get to experience, you know, uh, different, uh, you know, emotions from the same material. What a beautiful song, man. But it's also Um, nice at the same time to deconstruct it and make the arrangement a little bit different because that is what catches people's attention. Well, the question is, yeah, why do it the same way Ella did it? That's what we were faced with all these things. We're not going to do it better than her. So maybe is there a way for us to do it that's kind of more specific to uh, what Patty does and, you know, and what, what I would do? That was the biggest challenge for all these arrangements is to find that spot, you know. Well, uh, I wish you all the best with those three nominations, and now you have you. 25 to your credit. Uh, I, I can't give you a platform for an acceptance speech right now, but what I can give you a platform for at this point uh, in our conversation is to have you tell our listeners how they can learn more about you and the work that you've done and what you are still doing. Thank you. Well... We're doing the social media thing, you know, we uh, starting with our website, which we finally redesigned uh, last year, uh, bigfatband.com, and fat is spelled P-H-A-T. If you go to gordongoodwin.com, it takes you to the same place. Also, we're on um, Instagram at the real Gordon Goodwin, and then there's another page, Big Fat Band HQ, like headquarters. We're on Twitter, at Gordon Goodwin. And we're on Facebook. We've got a Facebook band page, a big fat band. And I've got a personal page, which might be I, my friend's limit. I'm, I'm not sure. But um, and then we're we're uh, we're kind of checking out a few other places like Spoutable is a site we're looking at. And there's one I think it's called The Post. Just a it's a it's a and, and we are a little bit on TikTok. I, I got to, You know, Alan, I could spend all day posting on these sites. But and that, but that's part of the gig these days. You know, it's keeping a, a presence, a daily presence. You know, so the algorithm knows it's you and that you're there and you're participating. So, you can hire people to do it, but then I find that I end up wanting to change the tweets and make them put them in my own words and you know make them reflect my sensibility. And so, uh, but um, all those places, you know, we're we're pretty active and um, and you know, and you can hear our music on Spotify and and. Uh, uh, YouTube and Tidal is another site that has HD versions of our stuff. Uh, but we're still pressing physical CDs and vinyl. We're going to do a vinyl copy of the piano duet record. Vinyl is just such an incredibly sounding format. I can't even believe we got away from it, frankly. You know, mm-hmm. we, we uh, press vinyl on, uh, we had the Big Fat Band had a record called The Gordian Knot in 2017. And we did vinyl copies of that, and I would play it in there. And I just the richness of that sound, the way that sound interacts with the, with the human physiology is amazing, different than what digital music does, you know. So that's kind of pretty much what we're doing. And it's uh, an awful lot. Finally, Gordon, let me say thank you for being our guest on All That's Jazz. It's my pleasure. I really appreciate your your great insightful questions, and it's always. Uh, pleasure to talk about the music that we love thanks for listening to this episode of all that's jazz with composer arranger band leader pianist and saxophonist gordon goodwin 
We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. And visit us again next time for another interesting conversation on All That's Jazz. If you like today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.